0: Hello and welcome to the podcast for the Working Class Academics Conference and today I'm here with Teresa Crew. Oh I should have said my name. My name is Joe Fletcher Saxon and I'm here with Teresa Crew. Um, Teresa describes herself as a working class academic who is now in her dream job um, but due to uh, class positioning it was a dream job that she never actually knew Um that she wanted i guess or is that right she's nodding yeah. away i can see her. Um, she spent the last 18 months researching difficulties that working class academics face and has also examined the advantages that working class academics bring to the world of academia um, she disrupts and challenges the deficit thinking regarding the working classes and in the words of peter shuki um, she says working class is not a problem to be solved so, uh, welcome to this little podcast, Teresa Crew. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having
1: me; much appreciated.
0: Yeah, it's our first little little venture for the uh, for the conference, isn't it? Oh
1: gosh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, in a, well, let's start by talking about the conference then, because it was it was launched last year. It was a it was really popular. It was a massive success, wasn't it? So, tell us why um, you were drawn to that particular conference. How you got involved with it.
1: Well, it, it seemed ideal just because of the research I was doing. It always seemed like faith. There was a conference in relation to the subject I was doing. So that, that felt kind of strange, to be honest. But I still approach the, the, um, the conference with trepidation. I, I'm not nervous at conferences, but there is a lot of uh, a lot about conferences that bore me, quite, quite honestly. So even though I applied for it and I thought, oh, yeah, this will be interesting. It was a completely different experience when I was there. It was an absolutely fantastic conference. I actually felt like I could be myself at the conference. Uh, and also I didn't have people trying to network with me all the time. You, you know, was in which was was actually a really strange um Um, experience because normally people if they sit with you uh, or talk to you it's because they want something from you and that wasn't the case so that was so refreshing so I really enjoyed
0: it do you think some of that is because it was digital I mean it was one of the first big conferences online I think wasn't it in in lockdown it
1: could have been but to be perfectly honest I I still think it would have had that same ethos without and I, I still would have had the same trepidation Even going into whether it was, you know, I've been to many conferences, I've spoken at conferences, I've been, you know, just a, uh, you know, I've been a listener at conferences, but I still find, as I say, that they're just these networking opportunities and they just make me cringe, or the opportunities for people to show off, and that also makes me cringe as well. So, because I think when you talk about research, you shouldn't be there just to show off about how knowledgeable you are in comparison to somebody else, because that isn't the case anyway. Um, but yeah it could have been that but I actually feel that because it was working class academics getting together that's what the difference was.
0: Mm -hmm. In fact lots of people have have said the same same thing actually. So what was your biggest takeaway from that conference then would you say? Um,
1: When I think about it it actually makes me quite emotional It it makes me think that okay there's more people like me and that to have that, actually even just saying that it is really emotional because you realise how without without knowing um, that you are quite lonely in academia. And I, I don't want to in any way imply that the colleagues I work with are, I mean, I have not experienced the barriers that the people that I spoke to, uh, so the difficulties people I spoke to as part of my book, I've not experienced those. I've experienced those outside of my workplace. Um, but yeah, there were people like me. I could talk normally. I mean, I could just speak how I speak without fear of being that awkward silence, tumbleweed, I've said the wrong thing. And I mean, that, you, you don't even realise how you've not been able to do that until you're able to be yourself. Okay. So that refreshing yeah. that.
0: It, it, absolutely. It's fascinating for me uh, talking to you. And of course, we've met before the podcast, type of chat, haven't we? Yeah. Um, because although I work, partly in higher education i'm based in a college not in what i would sort of call academia really so it you know those different worlds those different cultures yeah. it's, it's a real real insight right so we're here to talk about your book anyway let me read read out the title properly so it's okay. higher education and the work and working class academics precarity and diversity in academia yeah yeah so um tell us tell us about the book first of all what motivated you to pull together a book like this well, at
1: some point, I'll mostly pick, pick on this more, but what is quite, I found upsetting is I wasn't allowed the title I wanted of my book. Oh. I wanted it to be called A Class Apart, and I wasn't allowed to have that title. I wanted it to be called A Class Apart, Working Class Academics in Academia, but I wasn't allowed the title. Who, who wouldn't allow that? The publishers wouldn't allow me. I don't mind <laughs> <laughs> So the publisher, I, you know, getting all the knives and be upset with me. But um, no, and I... I, I from their point of view, I get why they're looking for people to find the book and get hits and things like that. But I'm just not about that. You know, I'm, the reason for doing the book, most people would do the books may, you know, maybe for um, a ref. I just always wanted to write a book. Um, I also knew I wanted to write a book because it was the one thing my dad would be able to, my dad has been so fantastically supportive of me being in academia, but I knew he would kind of understand um, that I was doing well because I've written a book, because writing yeah. the journal article, it's not the same. Um, and I just knew there was something in this topic, um, just little bits and pieces that I've experienced, I knew there was something in this topic. But yeah, I, I didn't do it to be on ref, you know, to get into the ref. I'm a, um, I primarily see myself as a lecturer, and um, I'm not, I say I'm not really a researcher, which sounds so strange because I've done lots of research, But if I had to choose, I'd choose teaching every day of the week. Um, So I just wanted to write about a subject that interested me. And that that was it. That was all. There was no, oh, if I do this, I'll become a senior lecturer. If I do that, I'm just not that type of person at all.
0: You mentioned REF there. We should say what that stands for. Shouldn't we research yeah. framework? Is it? Yeah. So
1: it's basically that if you know, if you um, you know, we are encouraged as, as academics to actually submit pieces of work to this, and this is not to say in any way to people who want to do that that I'm being disparaging off them, but it's just. I feel that having this sort of framework that encourages people to submit pieces of work and then it suggests how um, excellent the, the university is, I just think straight away that that's separating types of academics. You even talked to them when you talked about um, FE, I just noticed a slightly different tone, as in, and I believe that's because of the way that FE is treated in relation to HE. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be part of another piece of research I do soon. Um, you know, we look at academia in very different ways where the researchers who've like submitted to the ref they are the highest level of researchers you know, mere teachers like myself um who for me are doing the most important work are not seeing quite the same light um as it is to people who actually submit to the ref and things like that so that's why i make that oh,
0: like, yeah yeah oh, it's, it's like um what's the what's the phrase You're pre- almost preaching to the converted i think <laughs> uh, uh, because yeah. uh, you know I, I have a bit of a Bone to pick with the whole notion of what type of knowledge gets um, held up as valuable yeah. and what type of methods of sharing that knowledge research whether it's by a conference or a podcast for example yes. you know, yes. which gets placed or considered as valuable and appropriate all all of that stuff i find you know really really fascinating and if to me if you want as an academic writer yourself, if you want your stuff to be read, sometimes speaking at an (laughs) academic conference, ain't the place That's it's <laughs> yeah. really gonna get heard actually I think but well, that's just me that's just what no but
1: but it's that's right, right it. in, and I just think something like this it is a really good idea to, to have podcasts like you know like for instance Thinking Aloud I encourage my students to listen to that I'll be encouraging them to listen to this as well not particularly my one I mean that's that would be embarrassing to, to try and say listen to, to my one um, it killed me to put my book on my reading list but it does, does actually um, go with some of the work that I'm gonna be teaching about but like Killed me to do it. Um, so yeah, there, there is a difference between in academia how we see different types of knowledge, and I still feel, unfortunately, that um, that the sort of knowledge that actually gets through ref that is seen as the highest you know order knowledge. And I just think that's not the knowledge that my students really particularly are interested in at times. They're interested in, you know, know, more of the the work that can be explained to them. And I think that's a big thing that it's not enough just to use big words. And, you know, I could cite those till the cows come home. But that's not that's only going to give me an audience of like an echo chamber. And I'm not after an echo chamber. I'm after speaking to my students who might agree with some of the research that's out there who might not. And I like to just put it in, in ways that it's going to interest them. So, you know, it's not about dumbing down. It's just making sure it mm. interests them. That's where
0: I'm yeah. from. So, so when you, you set out this journey to um, interview, to speak to, I think, was it about 89 people in the book, featuring the book? Yeah. Are, yeah, yeah so I think. 89 ac- academics who, who define themselves as working class academics. And when you set out to do that, did you have in mind some kind of impact, not ref impact, but just yeah. some influence or impact that you wanted to have to, through pulling that together in a book um
1: see I'm always led by the personal I'm always led by my heart and all I thought was the idea for the book came about just because I'd had various conversations with my lovely students and they said variations of the theme trees you're not like other academics you're normal I I would disagree whether I'm normal but it's normal normal? (laughs) Um, especially this time um so I wanted to do that research, not to see if there was other people like me, but I was interested in investigating that as a research question. And I'd spoken to other male working class academics and they had similar experiences that I'd had. So I knew it wasn't related to gender. It didn't feel to be related to ethnicity as well, um, because I'd spoken to other colleagues who'd had this, you know, very similar experiences. So the idea of this book, if I really think about it, was just to... there's people out there feeling sometimes the same way that I have or my colleagues have that there's something out there that's spoken to them that's Mm -hmm. all I really even now want to get from the book I'm I'm not you know I'm not I'm not here to try and you know as I say that the ref is important to lots of people but for me I wanted to write a book about something that is to me had not been discussed in enough detail lots of people have talked about it in various different ways but this is particularly uh, the US literature I found. There was a lot of um, literature in the United States about this. Um, The person I really do have to thank as well is um, the work of Lisa McKenzie. She was one of the people that I heard using that term working class academic. I I, I mean, that blew my mind when I heard that because I thought, she's right, I'm a working class academic. So I really have to give her credit for that, you know, as in putting these things together was made up by students, friends, you know, looking at the literature, and also, um, you know, a person who I respect greatly is Lisa McKenzie as well. Yeah. So,
0: well, one of the, um, so in the last conference, I was a chair of one of the, of one of the sessions, and, and one of the questions that kept coming through in the early days was, well, how are you defining a working class academic? And I'm just wondering if that's something you had to grapple with in the conversations as you set out on your research.
1: So when I was thinking about it, when I was like putting together, so the research was literally only going to be quite small scale. I was just going to, you know, talk to about approximately 10 to 15 people and oh, it just wow. absolutely exploded. Um, so when I was thinking about it, I just kept on trying to work out a definition. And I have got a definition, you know, a working class academic to me is somebody who still defines himself as being working class by virtue of the family or background. But then every time I look at that, it, it's this way that we think about working class you know, some people, the way that they would describe working class is completely different to how I would describe it. And I don't think that's for me as the researcher, again, about making sure I don't own, I don't own these terms, Mm -hmm. um, making sure I don't as well um, impose my way of thinking on people who'd like to take part in research. I let them self-define whatever they Mm -hmm. meant. So, so I've got a general definition, but it's really, if, I just said to people, if you self-define as a wooden class academic, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. And the other thing that I did, people would still come to me, even the people who took part in interviews and would just say, oh, do you think I do? And I'd be like, that's not my place to tell you what what, what you are. You know, if you feel you are, you are. It's as simple as that. And I think the focus on the definitional issues at times is a way of ignoring some of the the difficulties that academics face of of working class heritage. I think if we focus on that, it ignores all the issues that, that are going on that aren't really discussed enough, I would say.
0: Yeah. So your, your response was much like Peter's response, Peter Shuki, who was the founder of this conference, actually, he would say much the same. Well, it's not for him to define. Yeah. So anybody listening to this, if you're grappling with that same question, in terms of whether to engage with the conference. Yeah. Um, yeah. The definition um, sits with you. Um, okay. So you, you ended up speaking to a, a mass of people in the end and do you, do you want to share then some of the, the, the key things that were coming through? What were the overwhelming um, messages, concerns or challenges um, that you know, people were talking to you about?
1: Well, I suppose, so when I, I actually, in the end, had to stop doing the research because I never would have written the book. Um, and I am going to start picking, well, I have started to pick up the research again because there's some themes that I'd like to explore. Because this is really, there's an awful lot of people that do understand where I'm coming from with this term and, and i wanted to take part in the research. So the first thing that I looked at was, you know, so I had three basic questions um, I, I, I also wanted to make sure the research was intersectional. So, what I mean by that is, we're not just, you know, I am not just a working class person. Um, I class myself as a working class woman. Um, I'm a white working class woman. I have some invisible disabilities. So, there's all these aspects of my um, my identity that do impact on my identity, you know, some which make, you know, potentially make me privileged, some that make me less privileged. Um, so, That was one of the things I wanted to do as well, make sure I investigated that, not just have this one size fits all, you know, these people are working class academics and this is what happened. Um, But basically at first people were, you know, interrogating that issue about whether they were working class. And what I found was some of the things that people related to being a working class academic was, um, you know, the background, um, still not feeling that they fit in. And this was the only people that really disagreed with that or or seemed to fit in a little bit better were people who'd been in the academy for a long long time i'm talking about late you know what would be classed as late career academics um there was also uh, and this is one of the first issues that my um i was gonna say students sorry i'm so used to say students my respondents talked about um was about the issue about precarity. so just i think it was just under half of my respondents were on some form of precarious contract and we know that academia is really precarious and at times, and this is where it is quite disheartening when you hear, like for instance, some people would be described that they're not a working class academic um, from people on the outside, where some of my respondents were earning, I mean, £100 per week. Um, now they were, they'd, earned, they'd worked maybe four hours um, and so that sounds great, you'd earned about £100 per week. But unless their partner was earning a lot of money, they could not afford to stay in academia. I had um, a couple of male respondents who, um, one in particular, the day he, um, I interviewed him, I met up with him and he'd not eaten. Um, his um, actually flatmates had given him food. I mean, these are people that were in potentially what seems to be a fantastic job, um, but they were skint. So there was an issue to do with that, you know, very much an issue about being skint. Um, And that was for the, and also, it's not just, the idea is then, is that once you, say, get some kind of a, like a um, more permanent contract, is that that suddenly disappears. Well, it doesn't, because a lot of the time you spend so many years paying off the bills that you've accrued, trying to actually be an academic. And it's not to say that anybody from a, a more affluent background don't, you know, don't struggle in any way in terms of like money. But it's very, very different that if, for instance, like that one respondent who had worked four hours, if they're not with their partner who's earning, who was earning enough to to get them by, they had no safety net. So that was another issue: no safety net, you know, no financial safety net. They had no parents who could actually just say, "Oh, you need money this week? That's no problem. I can, you know, I can help you like that." Um, and then the other thing that I did notice from um, my respondents was that there was a, an awful lot of um, I call them hostile encounters and they experience an awful lot of hostile encounters so I'll pause at this part because there's so many (laughs) related to that I'll give you a chance to to pick up on everything I said.
0: Okay okay Um, well to be honest I was hoping you'd get to this because I'm interested in in this hostile encounter stuff so I I don't mind you continuing there. Um, are, are they, when you say hostile encounters, are they what I would call microaggressions?
1: Yeah, um, so there were two ways that I looked at this. So the first time, I didn't actually realise I was picking up on microaggressions at first, because it really did, when I was like interviewing people, sometimes I could form themes in when I was interviewing people. Others, it wasn't quite coming as I was listening to them. At first, it was about, I kept on hearing the phrase imposter syndrome, I heard that over and over again. Yes.
0: Yes, yes.
1: But once I started interrogating it and, and what they were saying and like picking them up on different things, it wasn't actually imposter syndrome that I believe they were experiencing. It was about not fitting in. So once I said, okay, so what do you mean by the imposter syndrome? They would mention things like their accent. They would mention um, issues about the way they dressed. Um, they would issue uh, mention the words that they used when they were just talking on a, what they felt was a casual basis with another academic and like what I described before, there's kind of tumbleweed a little bit where you seem to say the wrong thing when you're just actually just being yourself. Um, There's issues to do with swearing as well. A lot of my respondents were like me in terms of feeling, well, my conversation is littered with the F word quite a lot because Mm -hmm. now some may argue that's because I'm not um, educated enough to know other words. I just say it's because it just, fix with the way I speak you, you know um and I got that an awful lot from respondents issues to do with that um food and weight you know not knowing what to eat at conferences all these ways um like for instance being at a conference where they'd spent 120 pound um getting an outfit for a dinner um, and these are things that they were supposed to go to each week and they didn't know what to eat because they've not eaten this type of food before so there's all these ways that the idea is you get into the academy and then all these issues that working class students face, the idea is that they suddenly go away or they don't and, and at times they're even more heightened. You know, feeling that you don't fit in when you're at your place of work is really not a nice feeling at all. So they were. Just, so it's about not fitting in. And then there's some really obvious hurtful microaggressions. Um, some were very, very, very overt and... This is a subject I'm going to interrogate in more detail, but what I found is men in particular, male workplace academics, experience very overt, in your face microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Women didn't seem to experience them as much. That's just according to you know, the, the people that I spoke to. Women tend to f- uh, face more um, covert, you know, less in your face, but there were still microaggressions, more like micro assaults, I think they would be called. Um, but men were asked about, so there was a man um, somebody I interviewed, he was at, I think, an Oxbridge dinner, and somebody said, I bet you've never been to a place like this before, have you? And he hadn't, actually. And, I, and he's saying in the interview with me, you know, way to make me feel like shit, you know, you know saying that, pointing that out, because he thought, oh, you know, have I, am I that obvious? So he did what a lot of working-class people would do and turns it into a joke. He says, no, I haven't. I'm normally here to rob the place. And he just, that was his way of coping with the the snooty comment, you know, about, well, I bet you've never been to a place like this before and things like that. Um, And unfortunately, there was an awful lot of these micro assaults at times and not always were were, uh, by um, more middle class affluent um, white women. Unfortunately, they were the people dishing out these um examples of micro microaggressions mm-hmm. um, whereas the ones that women face they just seem to be I don't, gosh I'm not downplaying them I'm just saying it as in they just seem to be everywhere everywhere that they were there was some kind of micro assault involved actually I'm going to just pick up one that I've got here um trying to look where is it um okay So a look I'll come back to that one because yeah. you know i looking okay. at something well, now
0: so, yeah okay come, well come back to that for the, the um, examples for a few okay. yeah, I was just going to say um somebody I've got to know um linked well since the conference is Becky Bainbridge and I don't know, if I know her name but name Cabell yes yeah, yeah well she talks about imposer syndrome rather than imposter oh. syndrome oh and it's, it's this thing with this fitting in it's about imposing on somebody and what you're feeling is that I think this is what she means I don't know uh, that that you're feeling that difference that disconnect because you're not fitting in you're not fitting into what somebody prescribes as you should do it's imposed on you what you should be fitting into yeah, yeah that's oh, what you're definitely. feeling yeah so, so I'm just I'm just getting a light bulb moment really connecting what you're saying to what what she talks about about this whole business of business of imposter versus imposter syndrome yeah yeah definitely totally. the swearing is so funny today um i uh, there's a new colleague who's come to work at you know where i am in based in a college uh, not in a university she's only been with us a week we, i met her in real life today but you know i've been meeting on in the online of course for the past week yeah um but there was an occasion today where we were interacting, where I did go in and I was swearing and ranting about something. <laughs> uh, it was about, uh, I, had, I couldn't remember passwords, to be honest, <laughs> to get into a finance system. Well, it deserves like, oh. swearing, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, I was ranting. Off. And then I thought, well, oh, I better go back and just say, and I did say, look, you know, I'd like to say that I don't normally behave <laughs> like that, but quite honestly, I do. So there we go. That's <laughs> yeah so no absolutely yeah 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 it's a good one um, how, do we want to go back to the women's yeah, so so you grabbed them? The
1: women? it was more things like so for instance i remember um a, a respondent talking about she um she was at a conference and she was told by some some idiot um that, that she shouldn't be teaching Foucault if she didn't know how to pronounce him properly and I remember putting in the book that um, the woman said, well, I've been teaching for 20 years. So, you, you know, as in, so if you need any tips, come to see me. And it was quite a smart reply. But I just remember thinking, and, and I laughed along with her when she said it. But what then I thought to myself was, this is just a defence mechanism. She's just laughing along to this, but it's like a dripping tap, which is what um, one of my respondents said, is that these comments, These sometimes they don't really seem that much. You know, they're just like little suggestions about how you may want to say a word. You know, that they're just like comments about, perhaps your writing isn't suitable for this journal. I mean, and this is when, you know, like friends are putting together, um, a, a, you know, like a, an application to put in for a journal and, you know, your writing is better suited for something else. These like, little little put downs, you, you know, in, but they're not the sort of thing that you can always pick somebody up on because if that person, like they' say the second person would have said, well, no, my writing's very good. I think I'd be very good at, you know, publishing in this the person would say, well, no, that's fine. I, I'd like, you know, we could publish elsewhere. There's always an excuse and a reason for these things to happen. Mm-hmm. But I just felt over and over again that um, the women were very much, it was just constant put downs. So in a way, whilst I've emphasized the men that I talked to really did experience very overt um, microaggressions, I feel that the women, it was just, as I say, like a dripping tap, like one of my respondents said. Um, and when that's I think true. about ethnicity, What I found was, it was quite strange when it was ethnicity, I used to get um, the respondents mentioned, and this was men and women, their experiences were very similar. The issue was that it was... um, Some um, questions were asked if they'd been been promoted. There were some suggestions about, oh, so how did that happen? You know, they were questioned about the promotions in the way that they felt that perhaps I wouldn't be questioned being a white woman, you know, as in working class or not. some there were like some like quite horrible comments made about the physicality of some of my, my black male and female respondents as well, oh you know, and this is in the place of work. And mm. you you know, it's in oh, you're too sexy to teach that. And I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just cringing stuff, you, you know. It's in you know, these people are working just like everybody else and they're having to deal with that. So, so yeah, it's um, so but I don't know
0: both are worse, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, uh yeah so I mean people need to gird their loins to read this book I think because there are some really yeah yeah some uh, some tough tough things to to read about but it's therefore. A tough read
1: actually chapter yeah. four is a tough read and like like the chapter three is a tough read because it's saying all these people that are, are like hang I felt some people were hanging on to their dear life to stay in academia but all these issues were stopping them from being in academia and I just thought about all the people I'm interviewing. What about the people that have left and I'm not interviewing? Yeah. So yeah, as I say, because I lead by the heart, I just felt upset for them, not just my respondents, but the people that have gone. I can't stick this out. You know, I haven't got the money. I can, I could, you know, I could have stuck it out. Say twenty years, if I would have left, no problem at all. So,
0: so I would describe that as a loss of talent into that in that exactly. in that sector. So let's let let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the. The celebrations, the positivity, yeah. the, the, the great richness that working class academics bring to the academy. What, was, uh, yeah. what, what so did you discover?
1: <laughs> what I found is one of the first six. So, out of um, my response, I think it was about three quarters mentioned student support. And it was just the variety of different ways that they felt that they supported students um, into higher education. Uh, through higher education, there were some attempts to try and help them beyond higher education, but that I haven't really got that fleshed out as, as much. But what I found is we had some wonderful uh, academics who are actually helping students before they've even got into higher education. You're just little things like, you know, reading over their personal statements, doing this in like community centers, not going through that, like, you know, not you know being in university, actually volunteering to do this at a community center. Um, This was done by a lot of women. Um, I think my responses are mainly from women, but I still do find that male working class academics help students as well. Um, There's a a late career academic I remember speaking to who would go to um, primary schools, I think it was, and talk about STEM subjects because she'd been put off going into STEM subjects and she wanted... She wanted young girls from her sort of background to see you didn't just have to be a certain type of person to study STEM subjects. Um, I remember a a black guy called Theo that I spoke to, and he liked helping out at open days because it just if like you know people um, you know people who are not white came to open days, if the institution is very white, it just doesn't make them feel that they fit in. So it's about helping as well, just being like. A role model being like you know somebody there to say there is people like you in this institution and i think that's vital it's vital work not just to have the usual suspects um you know in academia so so that's one of them the other thing what i found as well is that there were so many examples that i could have gave but um i've called it a working class academic pedagogy um so like a teaching approach that my working class academics have And they very much pulled on lived experience. So they would bring lived experience where suitable, um, either their own or other people's into the teaching. Um, They very much talk from like a social justice perspective as well, I heard this over and over. Um, I think the other thing as well is Coming at the teaching from seeing the students as having what is called funds of knowledge, like, you know, not seeing students as fray. I think it's Frere. Talk about um, uh, like empty vessels. You know, they saw the students as actually coming to university with the knowledge already. These weren't people that need to just be you know, filled up of knowledge by uh, you know, the, the learned professor. They had their own knowledge as well. So that's what I really liked. It was very much about, it was very much student focused. That's to me what, what we bring to academia, that the care and support we have for, for students. Um, I would say, not to say that middle I always have to say this part because I'm not saying middle class academics don't care about the students or anyway, before I get, you know, emails saying, I care about my students just as much as you do. But I think the difference is, is that if you talk about subjects such as poverty, and homelessness. I've um, spoke to students before and they just say they can tell when somebody has experienced it because there's that level of passion, care and upset about the issue that they're discussing. They're not just discussing it like it's just some dry old theory or something like that. And I think that's, you know, students want to see that. They want to see that their lecturers care and are passionate about things. And that's what a lot of my respondents said to me when they were talking about these issues
0: um no. <laughs> as always when you're recording a podcast the sounds <laughs> in the background I apologize if anybody can hear my son on the Xbox I can hear you really loud no, let's, no, let's hope let's hope not because I'm not <laughs> editing I'm not editing so um, okay um, so I think I, I, I kept scribbling stuff down because I thought oh which direction am I going it I think I want I want to know now then is is what has been the academies in its broader sense response to your Um, to your work, to your findings, to your publication. Oh, uh, you know, what?
1: it's a bit, it's a bit in back. So I still haven't got over that. I, I still don't, I'm not an author. I don't see myself as an author, but clearly I am. You, you sure. are, though, yes. <laughs> yeah. but so when I get, the, the response has been, so for instance, on Twitter, I have friends on Twitter who like you know, friends who I've got to know through Twitter, who, who yes. have been absolutely fantastic. And they promoted my book when I felt it was a bit cringy to do that. Um, But we're saying that, I did want to promote it because I want people to read it. And I've had some fantastic emails from people, people wanting to take part in further parts of the research. Um, The one that I was really not looking forward to doing, so I've already spoke, um, I spoke, I did like a bit of a book launch at my institution, and I was dreading speaking about it there. And it wasn't because it was the topic. It's just that I've never kind of done a lecture in front of my colleagues And that must be my my part of where I still feel like an imposter syndrome. I get lovely feedback from students, but I was dreading doing this presentation in front of my colleagues in case they thought, why on earth have we hired her? She's crap. So even at this stage, I'm a senior lecturer now, I shouldn't be thinking these things, but I know I'm not the typical person to, to be at most institutions. So the response has been really overwhelming, people telling me, it is quite heartening where they tell me that what I've written is very important even saying that I feel a bit embarrassed but I'm told it's very important Mm -hmm. there's no glance that people have written about this um I don't think I'll ever get over somebody saying that to me it is quite humbling um but also as well as in I know people are citing my work already I don't know how people get used to that because I'll never get used to that um but also did people want to take part in further aspects of the research, like, for instance, I'm going to be doing some focus a little bit more on men, also more on FE because I realised I hadn't, inadvertently, I hadn't included FE, and that hadn't been, that was not, a, um, I think it was just because I put out the call for people, and then you end up getting certain types of people responding, and I realised I hadn't really pushed out the call to people from FE so that's all right
0: the, we're uh, used to it we're used to it Teresa
1: I think you are because yeah. when I've spoken to so the people that contacted me about my book from FE have like you know re- the, a lot of the a lot of the issues they've resonated with them mm. but some of them they haven't in terms of the barriers that they that, you know that I talk about in this book some people in FE don't experience those because they're more round more like-minded people than perhaps my respondents are. And that's why I think it's really important to talk about that. You say not every working-class academic is going to have a terrible experience. You know, I haven't. It's only at conferences, as I say, where you get some idiot who wants to lord over you in some way. (laughs) But yeah, it's been really, really positive. I've not um, had anything negative said about the book. It's just about, you've said what I've been thinking and blah, 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 that sort of thing.
0: So if you were able to... um... If you had a magic wand, okay, and you were able to waive it to insist that certain changes occurred within academia based on your findings, what might some of those be?
1: Well, I think the first thing is that we need to get more working class writers on reading lists because... Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I've talked about when I've talked about class, and I've heard other people talk about class. They they discuss including class um, on the Equality Act, and in Wales, social status actually is on the Equality Act. It's you know it's not not happened in England yet due, uh, due to Theresa May, and I'm not sure. I, I'm not always keen on things happening in law as being the, the the right way to move forward because I think sometimes it can leave people um, feeling a bit. Um, that it's been imposed on them so whilst I think it's a good idea that's not the way I would particularly take I want to see more uh, working class writers on reading lists mm-hmm. I'd want to see um, more not just conferences within you know the humanities but also like STEM subjects you know investigating okay you know just class you know it's a classing issue there because at the moment I find that when we talk about barriers in society, they tend to focus very much on gender, um, very much on ethnicity. Um, there's still a long way to go, but class is still, for me, forgotten about by so many people, uh, to the point where I did a practice um, interview with um, somebody for media training. I'll never do that again because um, I'm, <laughs> the way, when I was talking about my research, he said, do you worry that you will come across like a loony left professor? Which again, to me, felt like a fucking microaggression.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But the issue with that was, what I felt was that the reason he thinks that is because talking about class is still seen as being the loony left. I'll take the professor bit, that's not a problem at all, but the, the fact that, you know, talking about class is still being a barrier, it seems as like, you know, being part of the loony left, and it's not, you know, it affects people on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. I think as well, I'd really like to see um, people, you know, reach out as well to, you know, if you feel you're a working class academic, reach out to like-minded people, so feel free to contact me, because if I can help people, I always will. Um as well, I think as well that we need to, I'm gonna get a look up here, what else I've said, because now, you know what? This is my favorite chapter, not shit right now, but some of it won't come to me now. I'll, um, let's have a look, sorry about this part. I knew this would happen. I'm gonna blame my epilepsy here, by the way. It's really, really useful. Okay. So epilepsy is not great, but it's very useful if you want to blame it for something. Um, so recognize class inequalities as well. Because, yeah, at the moment, we're still seeing that there is, you know, we don't look at class inequalities as being an issue. And, you know, just if you just go by the amount of people in my um, survey who were on precarious contracts and were on the verge, I mean, literally weeks away from giving up academia. There'd be so many people, as you say, pools of knowledge that we've lost just by that they haven't got the financial resources. And we really need to do something about that. Um, you know for instance conferences you're paying um, for conferences for people where they can attend the conference and everything's paid for them without ha- expecting them to pay up front because who can afford to do that you know £2,000 conference you know for everything you have to pay for mm-hmm. so I just think we just really do need to you know include class and recognize class as an inequality because right. without doing that these yeah. things will continue and carry on mm-hmm
0: okay well look we're coming to the end um so let's just think about the, the conference again um this year's conference are you submitting a paper gonna be doing a talk or oh yeah. definitely yes yeah. I'm,
1: I'm- the minute i get a chance i'm hoping to submit to um the journal as well when i get a chance but when i get when i get a chance that's um that <laughs> it seems like a long way away that does but yeah it's in without a doubt because i just felt so comfortable and confident at the conference i didn't feel you know like for instance just that happening then if i was at an ordinary conference you know twice i've had to look at my book and just remember what i was going to say and that's just because obviously one there's a huge amount of information i want to get across mm. but also as well there is an issue to i will go with epilepsy you know there is that like hidden disability i've got if i was at what i would class as the typical academic conference i would never have wanted to have gone to that conference again because all i think is that people would remember she's the one that lost her place that's what they would think but at the work class academic conference there's it's so welcoming, you know, you you know, you're with like-minded people, so I couldn't recommend it highly enough, you haven't paid me to do that by the way, I've done that on my (laughs) own.
0: Yeah, absolutely no, I just thought it would be a good thing, a good good place to end really, yeah, saying that, you know, about how you felt about it. Okay, well look, thank you so much for spending a bit of time with me in this Zoom room, um, (laughs) to put out our very first podcast, and what a brilliant uh, way to you know, start a little podcast series for for the conference. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you
1: so much for having me. And it is a fantastic conference to go to. As I say, I haven't been asked to do this. I'm just going by my own experience. And if you were thinking about maybe submitting to the conference, please do it. Because if you need a welcoming environment, this is the conference to go to.
0: Absolutely. And actually, you do get supported along the way. uh, So I was a chair um, for one of the group's, uh, the sessions last year and we spent weeks and weeks working together as a as a as a group uh, preparing so yeah yes Molly
1: Baker was my chair and she was absolutely fantastic mm. she really was I, I mean I, when I first did my recording my presentation I was ready not to go to the conference even then and she you know she was really reassuring so I really do appreciate that so yeah very 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 supportive brilliant so we'll see you there <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. And thank you for having me.